It is great to be here with you all. Christmas is upon us, church. Yeah. Man, what, what fun the season brings. You know, it, it goes without saying, but it keeps, it just happens year in and year out, all the great things of Christmas. Uh, we love the trees, we love the gifts, the reindeer. Some of us like Santa Claus. The snow, the words like hope and joy and love and peace and cookies and food and pasteles and man. Did I miss anything? What about Jesus, huh? It's crazy how that happens, isn't it? <clears throat> year in and year out, we come to December, second, third week of, of December, and we are full-fledged into Christmas celebration. Yeah, we know about the birth of Jesus, but like, let's talk about celebrating Christmas, though, right? Let's eat, let's have gifts, and, and yet, if that's where we go, we're missing the whole point. And yet, Christmas is about Jesus, and I know that when we lift up his name, God does something in our hearts. He does something in our lives and radically works among us. And so today, we are going to lift high Jesus, our King. We're going to do that. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy and I had the opportunity of going to Cook County Jail to be a part of Christmas services among inmates. Now, this is the second time that I've been able to do that. I had the opportunity to preach two sermons to two different units there in Cook County Jail. The first group we met with, uh, we're we're working with an organization called uh, Set Free. Set Free. And and, uh, our friend who is leading this organization is there in the prisons every week, uh, several times a week. He himself had a life sentence, crazy story, what God did in his life. And he met Jesus while in prison. And he now has made it his ambition to tell others who are imprisoned about Christ. And so he invited me to come and preach uh, these Christmas services. And I began to talk to them about these different catchphrase words, not just catchphrase, but these different words that we associate with Christmas, like hope and love and peace and joy. And our friend asked those guys, he said, are any of you guys wondering, is there just still any joy left for me in my situation? I thought that was a a big question to those who are incarcerated for crimes that I don't know what they did, but all I know is that they're going to be spending Christmas behind bars. And I thought about the question, is there joy left for me? I thought, you know, even for those who are on the other side of that address on California Street, we're asking the same question. Is there joy left for me? After preaching that service, we then went to the maximum security part of the prison. And I don't know what those guys did, but I know that our friend was like, hey, these these guys are are in here for a long time. They've committed some bad bad crimes. They've done some bad things. And, you know, as I got up there to preach, I thought, man, God, this is wild. I don't know what they were doing. There's about 60 guys, 50 guys or so in that group. But what I did know is one thing to be true, that the message that saved me from my sins is the same message that would save them from theirs. After we finished that service, a guy came up to us and he said, man, I, I needed this today. I got, I, got a, I got a 70-year sentence this morning. And so I needed to be reminded of this. You know, no matter where we're at on the spectrum of life, we all have the same need for redemption through Jesus. And the Christmas story, as fun as all these 
things are, the gifts, the celebrations. We all know, and maybe some of you are in this moment where Christmas celebration this year or past years hasn't been what it once was. Maybe you're going through situations, you're going through, through sorrow, through grief. Maybe you're just dealing with some old, your own struggles, depression or anxiety, and you're saying, man, is there, is there joy left for me? Is there hope left for me? I want you to know that Christmas is not just a warm, fuzzy time of the year, but there is something that God is doing to meet both our felt needs and our theological, our true spiritual needs. Christmas is about God's presence and God coming down to meet us here on earth and do a work in our lives. Christmas is about God doing an impossible thing to bring us his unstoppable king. This is what Christmas is all about. And I hope that you guys are able to celebrate Christmas. I hope you have a wonderful next couple of weeks. But I hope and pray beyond everything that you are able to do so through the lens of God coming to this earth to save you from your sins. That's our prayer. What also excites me about preaching this morning, we are talking about this with our worship team a moment ago before we started service, is that for many of you who are here today, this is still a very brand new or foreign story. Like you've heard bits and pieces, and I'm just super excited to open the Bible and show you what God has to say about Christmas. You know, it's crazy because we're going to look at the book of Luke chapter 1. And I want you to know something. This is not a myth or a legend. This is not merely a tale or a tradition. This is a true story that is founded upon the accounts of eyewitnesses. And for 2,000 years, there have been people who hate this message and the God of our Bible, and they have tried to give archaeological and geographical and situational evidence to debunk this. But yet here we are today. Because no credible evidence has been submitted to give us any reasonable doubt about the fact that God became a man, lived a perfect life, and died for our sins. In fact, Luke says here, before we turn our Bibles here, he, he writes this opening of his letter, to uh, his book of Luke. He writes it to a guy named Theophilus, which happens to mean lover of God. And this is what he says, and sometimes we forget, these books of the Bible were written for situations and for people. Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, hear that, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Basically, Luke's like, look, I'm a historian. He happened to be a doctor as well, a physician. Luke's like, I'm going to use my research skill, my training in historical work, my, my, my intellectual capacity, and I'm going to thoroughly research the accounts that we've been told about Jesus. I'm going to interview eyewitnesses. And I'm going to write this down in an orderly way, uh, orderly way so that you can be certain of what we're teaching you. And like I said, no one has been able to challenge Luke's account. And so today, we're bringing this orderly account to you now. 
as we get ready to read God's word. Would you please meet me in the book of Luke chapter 1 and stand to your feet if you're able to as I read the scripture. We are on page 855 in the blue Bible that's there in the chair in front of you. Church family and those who are visiting, if you don't own a Bible, please take the blue one home. It is our gift to you, and it is a great gift, because in that gift there is salvation in this scripture. So we'd love for you to have a Bible, God's written word. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following. I want you to see this with your own eyes and hear it with your own ears. What happened around that first Christmas? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name what, church? Oh, you got to say it better than that. Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her, who is called barren. And let's read verse 37 together. For nothing will be impossible with God. Yeah. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we are hungry to hear from you, God. God, many of us, Lord, are just here today thirsting for just uh, answers in our soul for what we're going through in life. Many here know Jesus. They've placed their faith in him. They've turned from their sins and embraced him. And Lord, I pray that today you would remind them of where their faith is at. Father, I pray for those who don't know Jesus today who are exploring this faith, God, I ask that you would move in their hearts, you'd bring conviction, and they would then today trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray you give us all ears to hear, give us all eyes to see, and Lord, I pray you would tear down distractions, that you would remove those things that impede our vision and hearing, and Lord, I pray that your gospel would go forward in power, with passion and persuasion today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I love this story. There there are details here that, that point us 
to what Christmas is all about. They, they, they anchor us in the essence of the first Christmas story. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to tell you, and we're going to point to the text, and we're going to look at what, what God is saying here, what's going on. There's going to be some, some presenting of the circumstance before we get into the, to the nuts and bolts of our message here. But I want you to see here in verse 26 that we see it's the sixth month. That doesn't mean it's June. It actually means it's the sixth month of a woman named Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, and she was pregnant miraculously in her old age, ready to give birth to a son of her own. And this son's name would be John, or as we know him as, John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. And so here Elizabeth, this elderly woman, is pregnant, six months pregnant. I mean, God is up to something. He's doing something crazy. And then during this sixth month of her pregnancy, it says the angel Gabriel was sent from God on a mission to a city named Nazareth, which is in Galilee. Nazareth was a nowhere city. In fact, Erica and I had an opportunity to go there uh, earlier this year when we went to Israel. We went to Nazareth, and it's today pretty, pretty ordinary. I mean, there's shrines that people have built over the years to Jesus and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's not a metropolis. It's a a pretty just normal, ordinary, unlikely kind of town. And that's what it is now. And in the first century, it was even more so, just a small town. That was Nazareth. And there in Nazareth, there were two people who lived there, Mary and Joseph. What we're going to see is this is a story of God going to an unlikely place to speak to an unlikely girl, engaged to an unlikely man, to do something very significant, of eternal significance. And even the, just even this fact, I just want to point out to you, God has a way of taking what appears to be very insignificant and doing significant things with it. Like God, God doesn't care about your bank account. Students, he, he doesn't care about your GPA. Get a good one, though. But at the end of the day, like, like you guys don't know what I got in my theology classes. God, God don't care about that. He doesn't care about the ride in your garage, the shoes on your feet, or the rocks in your ears. Okay, in fact, God has a way of taking the things that are perceived to be insignificant and doing something quite radical with it. He goes to Nazareth to marry a young teenager engaged to a man named Joseph that otherwise we would know nothing about. And here he is giving a great message. Nothing in this story signals king. Nothing in this story signals world changer. Nothing in this story changes, uh, uh, signals one who's going to change everything but God. God works through faithfulness. God works through people. And here he chooses Mary and Joseph. Verse 27, we're told that Mary's a virgin. This is an important detail in the story. Sometimes we just talked about her as the Virgin Mary. And one thing we got to understand, there are two extremes we take when it comes to Mary. One is this over-idolization of this woman. There, there are some traditions that actually put her on par with Jesus or even above Jesus. 
Family, we're not called to pray to Mary because Mary isn't God. We don't have to go through Mary to get to God. Some might say, well, you pray to Mary because she's the mother of God, and, and how can God deny his mama? This is, this is not how it works, all right? On the other extreme, we're like downplaying Mary, just an ordinary servant girl, just, you know what, God used her, whatever. These, these are wrong extremes. Mary is a woman of fantastic and phenomenal character. She's a teenager with superb knowledge of the word of God. We don't have time to get into the rest of this chapter, but she's about to drop a song at the end of this chapter that has so many scripture references that she is spitting out by memory. Mary is a young lady, a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. Now, in this passage, we don't learn anything about Joseph other than the fact that he's betrothed to Mary. We find out in Matthew chapter 1 that actually Joseph is a man of character. He's also a man of compassion. He's a man who loved Mary so much that the finding out of her pregnancy, he's like, that's very fishy because you and I aren't together, and you're telling me God did it. This is Joseph's posture, but it says that he resolves to divorce her quietly, not to put her up to open shame. He's a man of compassion. He said, why do you say divorce? He said betrothed. The word betrothed is kind of equivalent to our engagement, but with legal implications. When someone was betrothed to another, they were committed to marrying this person in such a way that to break off the engagement would require a divorce. So Mary and Joseph were locked in. They were locked in to be married. They were betrothed, but not yet have consummated their marriage because they weren't yet fully married. Hence, Mary being a virgin. And so we've seen that this angel shows up in Nazareth to Mary and gives her a message, this young lady who's engaged to Joseph. Now let me say something about the angel Gabriel. This is now his second appearance in the book of Luke. Earlier he goes to a man named Zechariah, who happens to be the husband of Elizabeth, who's now six months pregnant in her old age. And he's like, hey, Zechariah, I stand in the presence of God, Luke 1.19 tells us. This is where Gabriel's coming from, God's very presence. saying, God sent me to, to you to tell you that your wife's about to get pregnant. When you're done with your priestly duties, you're going to go home. And she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to name him John. Yes, I know there are no relatives in your family named John, but that's what you're going to name him. And he's going to be one who prepares the way for the Messiah to come after him. He's going to be one who's going to break up the ground and make a new path. He's going to preach repentance. He's going to preach a message saying, hey, one after me is coming who's greater than me, whose sandals and feet I can't even untie their shoes. That's what your son's about to do. Gabriel leaves Zechariah and he shows up here. He actually happens to show up in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 16, and he gives Daniel a prophecy of the last days. Gabriel's a busy angel, and here he shows up in Nazareth. He shows up to Mary. Another detail we're given about Joseph. He's of the house of David. Now, we've been going through a series on the life of David, the king, and now we're going through a series of Jesus, the king of kings. But what we find out about David is that God gives him a message in 2 Samuel chapter 8. He gives him a prophecy saying, one of your descendants 
will be king and will reign forever. So throughout the Jewish history, from that point on, they're just saying, there's going to be someone from David's lineage who's going to come and make things right. But then God's people fall off the map. They rebel. They think God has forsaken his promises. And yet God tells them, hey, I keep my promises. Though you don't, I do. And he shows up here to Mary and Joseph, who happen to be descendants of David. What's God about to do here? The angel says in verse 28, he came to her saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is a bonkers kind of statement. The Lord is the name of Yahweh. This angel saying, hey, you teenage lady in Nazareth, you are favored in Yahweh's sight. And no wonder why she goes on and says in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's like, I don't understand what's going on. And if she was like you and I, she's probably thinking, you got the wrong person. You surely did not show up in Nazareth, in this little hut that we've got here as a family, to talk to me. But what Gabriel goes on to do is reassure her that he's got the right person, because he says in verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. I know your name. I know who you are. Something's about to go down here. You have found, again, he reminds her, favor with God. And then look at the message he gives her in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. This is wild. You're going to conceive, you're going to bear a son, you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to be great. Talk about spoiler alert for Mary. No gender reveal party. It's going to be a son. No pregnancy test. You're pregnant. What should we name him? You don't get a choice. It's Jesus. What's he going to be when he grows up? King. Mary's like, all right. What's, you know? Bridal shower, gender reveal, everything. I mean, baby shower, gender reveal, all this in one moment. So I was thinking about this, like, like really, like, there's, I mean, there's no tension here. But what Gabriel just gave to Mary was an outline of the prophecies God said he would fulfill one day. He says, you will conceive. You see, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, there's a prophecy saying that a virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when the angel says, you're going to conceive, O virgin Mary, he's saying God's about to fulfill that prophecy, and you're the one. You're going to give birth to a son, which signals our memory to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, to us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulder. He'll be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. This is the one, Mary. You will conceive, virgin. You will have a son, prophecy fulfilled, and you will name him Jesus. You see, the name Jesus is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua means salvation. See, in Isaiah chapter 53, we read that this one would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our sins, our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Salvation. Mary, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, 
Isaiah 53, 5 is in your womb, fulfilled in you. And he will be great. I find it fascinating how Gabriel said he will be great. He's going to be the great one. Now, we use the word great a lot in our language, like the great white shark, right, or the great Dane, or the greatest basketball player ever being Michael Jordan, right? (laughs) Or the greatest basketball team ever being the 95-96 Bulls, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) But with all these peoples and circumstances, they're great in something, but they don't personify great. They in and of themselves are not great They might be great at a sport, great in their stature, great in their skill, but are they great? Mary is told that the son in her womb will be great. He himself will be great. And God alone is great. Mary's ears are tingling here like, what are you saying? What's in my womb? What's going to be here growing? He will be great, we're told in verse 32, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Yeah, yeah, Mary, you're going you're gonna to carry him nine months. Yes, you'll give birth. Yes, you will be his mother. But he will be the Son of the Most High God. In your womb, there is one who will have human in your DNA, Mary, but he will also have divine DNA, Mary. He will be fully man, Mary. But he will also be fully God, Mary. He will be the Son of the Most High. And if that's not enough, Mary, if you haven't caught on to what's going on here yet, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. You know what I'm saying, Mary? Your son will be the fulfillment of the promise to David to be the king, to reign on a throne forever, Mary. Mary, Jesus is king, and that was true before Kanye said it, family. He will sit on his throne as king. He will reign as king, and this is being declared from the womb, family. No one had to make him king. He was king. No one had to make him great. He was great. This is the child in Mary's womb. And he will reign forever, just as God said in 2 Samuel 7, 12, 13, and 16. Well, Mary's here. She's like, this all sounds really amazing. But there's one problem here, Gabriel. It's there in verse 34. How can this be since I am a virgin? Like, like in vitro fertilization hadn't happened yet. How how are you going to do this in my womb? See, the the, the crazy thing about Christmas is there have been so many popular stories that come out of it. And a lot of them are fun, right? A big guy with a red outfit going down chimneys, eating cookies in everyone's houses, drinking who knows how many glasses of milk. And then when he's done with that house, what does he do? He gets in a sleigh that's led by flying reindeer. And just in case it's too stormy at night, the first reindeer actually has a red nose that does what? It shines like a headlight. I mean, this is a miracle. 
This dude gets to every single house in one night. Miracle stories in Christmas, huh? We have all kinds of miracle stories. Miracles on 34th Street. We got miracles everywhere. But what about the miracle on the 34th verse here, family? She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin in Luke 134? You see, what happens in the Christmas narrative in our culture, we long for something great. We long for something miraculous. We long for a hope, but if we don't long for Jesus, we're going to get everything that's a lesser miracle. Yes, flying reindeer are a lesser miracle with lesser hopes and lesser joys. But in Jesus, there is the epitome of the miraculous. The epitome of hope and joy. God is telling Mary, I've got that figured out as well. You see, the angel Gabriel says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And the, the mighty one is going to overshadow you. That's the same language that's used of God's presence coming over the tabernacle. Mary, your womb is going to be a place of worship there. Your womb is going to be the place where God dwells. Therefore, it says in verse 35, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And just in case, Mary, you're not sure if this is a possible, you want to know something else? You know that, that, that old relative of yours, Elizabeth? Guess what? He says, she's six months pregnant. I'm sure Mary's like, I don't know what's more crazy here. <laughs> but then in verse 37, we see why. Why we need to hear this. What does Gabriel say? For nothing will be impossible with God. See, God would do an impossible thing to bring his unstoppable king. He would do something that's mind-blowing, that can't not happen apart from his divine intervention. It's like God's saying, don't forget who I am. Israel's living in dark days right now. The kingdom has been torn down. There's no king on any throne. You're under Roman oppression. There's been 400 years of silence since the book of Malachi closed out. You're feeling despair. You're wondering, has God forgotten about me? Why are you taking so long, God? And God, I don't forget that my timing isn't your timing. As we say it often, I'm never late. I'm always on time. God's like, impossible? For me, that's a layup. God's the uncaused cause. He is the unmoved mover He is the artist behind the canvas of creation. He designed the Siberian tiger. He crafted the spotted leopard. He carved the ocean's depths like the Mariana Trench. Scaling Everest, God is the one who put Everest to scale. God created this world ex nihilo, to use that Latin phrase, which means out of nothing. God made something come from nothing. And that womb, Mary, I could put something there that was not there previously. This is the remarkable message of Christmas. But why? Why why this route? Why so long, God? And we don't know God's 
timing and his wisdom. But some things are remarkable here. You see, I mentioned that the people of Israel were under Roman oppression. But with that Roman oppression also came some opportunity. You've heard of the Pax Romana, which means there was a Roman peace throughout the land, which meant that the Roman Empire would become fertile ground for a message to spread like wildfire. Furthermore, the Romans were known for their Roman roads. So they paved paths for major cities throughout their empire for people to walk on carrying all kinds of things like a message. In addition to that, before the Romans came to power, there were the Greeks led by Alexander the Great who established the Greek language throughout the land. So then there was Latin, so there was a common tongue, so people everywhere could speak to each other even though they had their different dialects. See, this became a fertile ground. That's why Galatians says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. What God was saying is like, hey, at the right time is when I'm coming. And right now is the right time. Because when Jesus comes and his salvation is accomplished on the cross, this message can go down those Roman roads, travel throughout the empire because of the peace, and be communicated because of the language. God's like, I'm about to start something revolutionary. I'm going to give the way of salvation through Jesus. And family, why did God, though, have to become a man? That's been the question throughout the ages. St. Anselm of Canterbury once asked that question and wrote a book titled, Why the God-Man? And his conclusion and the conclusion of others since has been quite clear. A mere man could not pay for your and my sin. We, we, we try to do that. We try to get right with God in our own strength. How, how well does that go for us? That's pretty sad. You see, God is perfect. We are not. Our sin separates us from God. And so we cannot get right. So a mere man, a mere humanity cannot get with God. So then let God go ahead and do it. But yet, mere divinity cannot die. See, God is eternal. What God had to do was in his divinity become a man, maintaining his full godness and full humanity so that he could be a perfect sacrifice on the cross as one who pays for our sins and be God who can forgive it. You see, we cannot look at the manger without seeing the shadow of the cross. That's why the God-man. And so here we are, staring at this passage seeing that Jesus is the king to come. But with this, then, comes an expectation for you and me, family. What do you do? How do you stand in relation to this king of kings? You see, to be a king means you've got a kingdom. And if you've got a kingdom, that means you have subjects. And every kingdom also has opposition. So where are you at? Are you surrendered to the king? saying, Jesus, I follow you, I worship you, I've turned from my sin, I believe that you died for me, I'm living for you. Because that's not where you're at. You are in opposition to the kingdom and remain under God's wrath. You're not part of, of the kingdom of God. See, Christmas calls us to look eternally and see what our response would be. What would Mary's response be? Well, in verse 38, she makes a profound statement. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary could have been like, Gabriel, you just ruined my life. 
I'm going to be ostracized. My child's going to be mocked. You just made life pretty miserable to me. Oh, and now i got to tell Joseph. You see, Mary could have been like that, but Mary, in her maturity and her faith, understood what was happening here and also understood the right posture. And she says, I am the servant of the Lord. That there is a kingdom, there is a king in my womb, and I'm a servant. That's the posture God is calling you and I to take. The posture of one who submits ourselves to our king. Jesus is a king who would just not wear a th- uh, sit on a throne, but also one who would carry a cross. He's a king who would not only wear a crown of gold one day, but a crown of thorns. He is not just a king who would deliver from unjust political structures, but one who would deliver us from the tyranny of sin. And he's not one who would just reign physically on earth, but also one who would reign in our hearts through faith. So this Christmas, family, understand this. That this is not just about, although as fun as they are, Christmas stories and gifts and celebrations Stellas, those are good, but it's about Jesus. And if you came in today saying, is there hope for me? Is there joy for me? I need you to know that because of God, through Jesus, the answer is a resounding yes. God did an impossible thing to bring his unstoppable king to save you from your sins. And let your response be surrender, faith, repentance, and living for him with all that you've got. Family, this is what Christmas is all about. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we we just thank you, Lord for always being at work, even when it felt like you were not. God, it's, it's amazing to me how you would go to Nazareth and deliver such a radical message. God, it is a gift to us that you would fulfill your promises, never late, never too early, always on time. And God, we just surrender to Jesus, our great King. We submit ourselves to his reign, Lord, if there are any here today who don't know where they stand in relation to Jesus, Father, I pray that today might be the day of salvation where they would believe, they would put their faith in him. God, for the the son and daughter of yours who is in this room, Lord, who has been wavering or struggling, would you meet them even now? And Lord, I pray that they would make decisive choices to follow you and say, behold, I am the Lord's servant. Oh God, we give ourselves to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a stand up here. Let's sing this closing song together with conviction, reflecting all that God has done for us, family. Prayer team, would you make yourself available here in the front of the room? And um, God is, if God's been stirring in your heart and you've got a prayer burden and you just need someone to pray for you, please come forward. Our prayer team would love to do that. Let's sing together. Thank you, Lord. Church family, remember what he's rescued you from. If you put your faith in Christ, Remember where you were when he rescued you. Remember where you were when you first began to understand his salvation. 
Maybe you're here today and that's yet to be your decision. We still pray that you would not leave today without having surrendered your life entirely to Christ to wave your white flag and say, God, I need you. Father, we praise you, Lord. And when we had nothing to offer you, our greatest works were like filthy rags. You still came and rescued us based on no merit or goodness you found in us, but simply by your mercy. We praise you, God. We thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for standing in our gap. Jesus, thank you for taking our place, for being our substitute lamb. And so we just promise to give you all the glory because you alone deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In a moment, you'll be dismissed. I just want to remind us about the live nativity next week. I want to say this. We're not in the business of putting on cool activities, family. Those are fun. It's going to be fun. We want to see people meet Jesus. We, we want people to come to know that there is a Savior who loves them and died for them. And so please take this opportunity to invite someone. Invite someone who is not connected to a church. Invite someone who does not know Jesus to come to our live nativity next week. You're going to see the Christmas story uh, acted out. You're going to hear the gospel message. It's going to be a wonderful celebration lifting high Jesus and this good news of his salvation. So this is a great opportunity to bring someone through. It's going to be a memorable opportunity as well for them. So um, please take advantage of that next week after our service. I don't know what I'm Would you bow for the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, family. You are dismissed. Please join us.